All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers, what the fuck buddies, what the fucking ears, what's happening? I'm Mark Maron. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. I'm back home, man. I've been back home a day or two. I got back home on Saturday, and I recorded my HBO special on Thursday. On Friday, I just hung around New York, ate a giant meat sandwich, tried to relax, tried to feel like uh, I'd accomplished something great as opposed to feel like, oh, it's over. I'm done. It was okay. I tried to I tried to sort of ease out of it. But uh, now I'm back home and I'm exhausted. Today on the show, I talked to Tommy Tiernan, Irish comic, actor, writer. You may know him as uh, Jerry in the show Dairy Girls. He co-hosts the Tommy Hector and Lorita podcast. He's also the host of the Tommy Tiernan show on RTE TV in Ireland. He's a guy I've seen around and said hi to for years. And I finally got a chance to sit down and talk to him on that last trip to Ireland. So let me tell you how it all unfolded. I can walk you through it. I mean, I woke up pretty normal. Like, I know I've been paying a lot of lip service to freaking out or, or not taking care of myself in order to comfort myself, which is probably true. Uh, but ultimately, on the day of the taping, when I was going to do two shows for the HBO taping, I was sort of calm. And I think all of that comes from working the fuck out of this stuff for a year and a half. I mean, I definitely was confident in the material. I could have done it in in my sleep in a way i mean i just the jokes were dug in they were dug into my neural pathways they were dug into my sense of timing they were dug into uh they were just ready to go but i wasn't really bored with them which was good so the day of the show i got up and actually ended up it was weird because i thought my manager texted me to have coffee uh david martin uh, and i was like sure let's have coffee and it turned out it was dave manheim uh, Dopey Dave from the Dopey Podcast, and it, it, you know, he texted me. I'm here, and I'm like, "Why? Oh, that David." <laughs> but it was actually the perfect David to hang out with before the show, you know, because Mannheim's a recovery guy. We went and got some breakfast. We talked the real shit for a while. Got my head clear. Got me to purge some demons uh, by talking to another sober uh, drug addict, and it was a perfect way to start the day of the special. Um, we did not record it. I'm much to his chagrin. Probably we did not record that because he's always trying to get me to be on his show. But this was just a couple of guys hanging out, and he was grateful that I didn't make him go to Katz's because he works there. But he's trying to you know spend his life there. He doesn't want to spend his life at Katz's or hook me up with meat. I didn't need meat. The day of the, the morning of the show, I did not need to to fill up on meat. So about twelve forty five, a car takes me almost to the theater. Here's the thing about taking cars in New York. Take the fucking train. Just take the train, no matter what. Even if you're dressed for the opera, take the fucking train. Jesus, man. Guy got me about a block away, said, this ain't moving. I'm like, all right, I'll get out. I'll get out with my with my fancy pants. They weren't that fancy. So I walked to the theater and kind of took it in. Took in the, the, they got the lighting up, the backdrop up. Everything looking great. Then I had to do a bunch of still photographs, do a little hair and makeup. I was trying on the clothes. I, I worked with a stylist this time. Um, I've never done that before. And I still have mixed feelings about it. But I'm told that it's going to look great. It's a little awkward for me 
because I tend to wear my own shit. So I, I try the outfits on, I get the hair, you know, I get hair and makeup, I choose an outfit, then we do a bunch of still photographs. And all this is going on while there is Russ and Daughter's food in the backstage area. That's what we had brought in. About five or six kinds of herring, um, sable, smoked sable, smoked salmon, a couple kinds of cream cheese, whitefish salad, baked salmon salad, all kinds of bagels, pickles, full Ashkenaz. We're going full Ashkenaz uh, for pre-show, which is fine. Nothing like salted everything to maybe put on some water weight right before you get on stage. Now, generally, in my past... I've been shredding inside, just kind of losing my mind in anticipation to do the special, you know, to get on stage, just panic and worry and just wondering if anything will work. None of that happened. I was so prepared in my mind to do this thing that I was just sort of excited and kind of trying to eat as much smoked fish as possible because I didn't want any of it to go bad. These were the two places I was putting my energy. I was trying to pace myself so I could eat as much smoked fish as possible, but also get out there and focus on the set at hand. We used the music that I uh, composed with the fellas. I don't have a name for it, but it came out pretty good. Came out really good. So the plan was to, uh, I, I, you know, Brendan uh, McDonald did some of the uh, offstage announcements. I did an offstage announcement, and then we just brought the lights down popped up the backdrop when you're sitting in the audience before the show it's just a bunch of white screens up there and then the lights come down boom backdrop pops up my big riff comes on bang then i walk out like 30 seconds later and and do it so the first show was hot as fuck not hot temperature wise the audience was lit almost too lit they were very excited all the jokes were you know popping Everything was good, but I fucked up the opening joke, and I felt like I was a little too amped, a little too uh, excited, caffeinated, full of smoke fish. So the subtext of everything that's going on is I'm digesting the history of the Jewish people in my stomach. Just, well, at least Ashkenaz. I had fucking Ashkenaz food buzz going on. But the show went great, and we tried to light this thing a certain way, this bit I was doing, and that completely got all fucked up, which is fine. And then I finished the show, I went back out, and I shot that thing again with the same audience. It was funny because they weren't told to wait, you know, in case we needed to shoot something else. So so I closed the show. Everyone's getting up, putting their coats on, and then Steven, my director, is like, go back out there, go, go, back, there. go back out there, tell them to hang out. So I got to go back out there, tell them to hang out, and then we, I told the story, I just made it loose and uh, we reshot something that was fine and then it was sort of getting ready fucking filling back up again for the second show which was different because i was looser in a way i ate a bunch of babka in between shows so now we're going with the uh, dessert ashkenaz and um rugla so i'm kind of kind of cranked on the uh fatty cookies and cake but I get out there, and it's a totally different show, man. The second show was totally different in that the audience was not as lit up. Uh, I had to uh, earn it. They were a great audience, but they weren't all jacked. You know, they were. It was. I would say it was an, a more honest show in a way because they. You know, there. I could tell. I've been doing this a long time. They weren't going to laugh unless I made them laugh. 
The first show, I'm not sure. I think the first show, they were just so excited, I probably could have done anything. But this show, it was like, I had to work for it. And it was good. It was good that I had to work for it because it made the jokes uh, tighter and better. And, you know, it made them it made them work more. The jokes. But I found room to improvise second show. And a few things happened that I believe we'll use in some of the material. I did stuff that night of the HBO special. And this happens something, this is something I do generally at all my specials is that stuff happened that that never happened before and probably never will again that night. I know where they are. I know which things they are. Maybe after the show runs, I'll tell you. But I improvised some stuff. I made some choices around the emotional drive of a couple of jokes. But a couple of beats just deliver themselves out of the ether from the muse, from the great unknown, which is how I generate material. It's given to me by forces I don't really understand in a moment. And that happened like two times, second show. And one of them really brought a lot of the the Lynn stuff and the grief stuff together. Uh, there was just a funny beat that wasn't there before. And it was delivered to me, perhaps by Lynn. I don't know, but uh, it makes everything very present and very alive. And that second show was, uh, it was longer, but it gives us a lot to work with. So all in all, it went great. And I feel good about it. And Friday, I just, I hung out with Deborah Winger and I'm not name dropping. I love Deborah Winger, but we were kind of, she used to come around on my Instagram lives, and then I, you know, I met her. She came to the screening. I told you that. But then we went out and uh, had some uh, some Katz's Deli and just talked for like three hours. It was great. It was a pleasure. What? Like, no mics. It was fun. The whole thing was great. And now I just have to, you know, start eating like a person, get off the fucking cigars, start hiking up the mountain, and I don't know if I'm going to take it easy. I'm. I put in for spots at the comedy store. So here we go. I've actually got some ideas I want to work out. Here I thought, like, I'm done. It's over. And now I'm just going to go right back to it. But uh, all that being said, if you came to either of the shows in New York, thank you for coming. It was a tremendous experience for me. I hope it was for you. For the rest of you, you'll see it at some point, hopefully uh, earlier than later next year. And uh, and today you're going to hear me talking to Tommy Tiernan. You can get the Tommy Hector and Loretta podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. The Dairy Girls is on wherever that's on. Um, Kit loves it. Uh, she watches it all the time. She loves it. But this is me uh, basically talking to Tommy Tiernan for the first time in Ireland. Ireland. <laughs> But what I was saying about about expectations and show business is, you know, after having so much resentment for so long. <laughs> yeah, but you're you're fluent in resentment. I know I am. Aren't you? <laughs> no, I'm I'm uh, fluent in hope. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Come on. That, I mean, really? it, but uh, are they are they the same when you're Irish? <laughs> hope and resentment. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. Let's start philosophically. Um, Do you know they have the, they have these radio stations, uh, these Christian radio stations called Spirit and yeah. Endeavor? It'd be good to have one resentment. Well, yeah, Resentment FM presents. Well, I think that part of what we do, uh, honestly, is is that we are able to. I mean, you can't process bitterness sp- specifically on stage. I tried that. I tried to be bitter on stage when I was younger. I was prematurely bitter, and it, my assumption was that everybody is a little bitter, and uh, that may be true. It may not be true, but it's not entertaining. Well, I found I've 
used to find that very attractive, Mark. You, you did? Yeah. Uh. Those, um, I love listening to stand-up uh, as opposed to watching it. So yeah. So I'd, I'd always prefer a good CD right. rather than a Netflix thing. Sure. So I remember all those, you know, um, tickets still available. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this had better work. <laughs> not sold out. Not sold out. <laughs> the trilogy, uh, not sold out, tickets still available, and... Um, Oh, what was the other one? Oh, I can't was remember. Was it one with the hope the word hope in it? I hope this is Oh yeah, yeah. This this has to be funny, I think. <laughs> and uh But I thought they were all fantastic, Mark. I, I, I didn't see it as a um, Oh final engagement. Final engagement. That, that was, was the yeah, one. Yeah. That was the one totally unprocessed material and in the middle of my wife leaving me. Well that's great. Two hours. To be a passenger on that trauma for you was entertaining. <laughs> yeah, well but I think that's why I No, it was it it was brilliant stand up. So I don't I don't I don't think that resentment, unprocessed resentment, it, it might have something to do with control. Uh-huh. When you're in, totally in control of the product, yeah, it becomes less interesting. Right. So, so you don't listen to my podcast. So, <laughs> so when it's a little bit unprocessed, yeah. it's like a horseshoe. Yeah. There's shape for the public to come in. There's, there's space for the public to come in. So that's why I found those it's early a CD. Oh, it, it, that's a shape uh, metaphor, not uh, you might get it around the pole. You know, you Both. might. Yeah. Yeah. And there'll be a clang when you don't. <laughs> that's it. So that, I find that interesting, you know, that just that um, it's, a, it's probably about, in a sense, authenticity, you know, that you want to be listening to somebody who's not quite. Like for me, and I hope you don't mind me being fantastically. I'll take this opportunity to be judgmental and talk to you as uh, a fellow traveler. Yeah, do it. So say George Carlin's later stuff. Right. Which I found, it was so together. It yeah. was so chiseled that there was almost, there wasn't room for the audience. Whereas Lenny Bruce's kind of... Uh, he needed the audience. Yeah, but he was kind of like he was... He was flushing stuff out of yeah, himself, right? And in and some of that was messy, and some of it was unformed, and some of it was oohs and ahs, and yeah. but it was, it was more interesting. But he was always checking in to the audience. I mean, like even when Lenny was, he was always sort of like dig, you know, dig, dig, you know. He always dig this, yeah, right, right. Whereas Carlin later was just sort of like, I don't give a fuck. Yeah. This is how I think. Yeah, fuck you, take it. Which is just a bit. It's a bit harder to spend time with it's but intellectually philosophically i found it uh uh satisfying and i and i dismissed him it wasn't until i watched the judd apatow documentary recently that i really started to reassess some of that older carlin sure yeah because yeah. i found a distance with him because unlike you or i that was a guy that wrote down everything yeah and that everything was worked out like a fucking math problem like you know when i watch you work or when i know my process i don't know your particular process but you're going to talk and you're going to see what happens. And over time, something will evolve. Eventually. Right. Yeah. But that's the way I do it too. There's a tremendous risk in that. But once you know that the beginning of it is funny, then you're good. I think you're probably more of, than stuff I've seen, I think you're probably more of a risk taker, a certain type of risk taker than I am. I think, I remember you saying to me one time, you just load up and go. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Yeah. And that whole idea of uh, caffeinated yeah. angst yeah. with verbal dexterity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Plus anger and resentment. I've gotten softer, though. 
I've gotten softer. Have you? Yes, I've broken a bit. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bit more uh, open-hearted out of necessity, out of uh, because you can't hold on to it uh, anymore. No, but that's but you've paid a high price for that. That yeah. does, that doesn't. That's not you know. That place doesn't come easy. No, that's, and you wouldn't choose it. No, you know you can be. You can say, well, you know. Uh, this softening has benefits, <laughs> yeah. but, yeah, you know. Right. It's just like, oh, the loveliness of age has made me wiser and a little more. So it's like, no, I got, you get beat up, you get hurt, you get heartbroken, heartbroken. Then, you you know, you, you get a grief, you know, you're in grief. But I think like, you know, I, I feel like I've always been those things. But anger is a way, you, you know, to avoid those things and, and also to to uh to express those things but you know the type of grief that i was in in the last few years is different because it's not you, you know it's not preemptive you're not making it up mm. you know, real loss is real loss you know i don't think i acknowledged it as much you know when i got divorced or whatever because you can still be angry and you can still be angry when somebody dies that you love but it doesn't go anywhere and eventually you have to surrender to what life is right i don't know I'm no, not, I'm not going to challenge you on that, but I don't, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? This is why, this is like, I'm trying to understand you know, why I like and feel psychically and, and emotionally connected to this fucking country and I'm a Jew. And I need answers from you. Well, I used to do this line, uh, the Irish are like the Jews, but not as focused. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. So we're like... Not as ambitious, you know. <laughs> True. Um... I know we're both people of the word. Mm. Uh, what about the sorrow, man? What about the sorrow? Yeah. Uh, well, I, where does drunkenness come into it? I. I That's a treatment. Is it? <laughs> well, I wonder about. See, okay. So again, speaking very broadly. Yeah. We are a people, the Irish, who had uh, our country. We were colonized. We were starved, and we had our language taken from us. And that's a, to to be communicating in another people's tongue has its advantages because you come with it with an Irish mind to the English language. So it it it's kind of like a you you become more creative with it. Mm. You know what I mean? You're naturally not operating from the same source as the English. Um but we, we always had our own country in the sense that, you know, we weren't looking for a homeland. We were here. Yeah. I think the Jewish experience is is radically different. It's, of course, there was the, the getting of the homeland in after the Second World War. But there was also a a survival thing in other societies that, that yeah. you know. A, a need to adapt and find the, the, the places where we could uh, thrive in the midst and, of and pure... Be, and be protected. Yeah. Um, and but the thing that the word is really interesting. I'm very, very drawn to the Bible. Yeah. And those stories and both that, testaments. Absolutely. And I, I, you know, I was when I was thinking about talking to you because Christian means something very different in America than it does here. It's not good in America. No, it's a little bit heightened and very sure of itself. It's half fascist too, right? Yeah, it is. It's and it's a bit clean cut. It doesn't seem to be not about service. No, it acts. no, it doesn't seem to embrace poverty the way Jesus might have suggested. <laughs> <laughs> no, 
Not at all. It's, a, it's been turned around uh, into an anti-poverty stance. Yeah, you yeah. know, which is... Uh... How to transcend from poverty. Like you talked about in one of your bits, you, you talked about Joel Osteen. And yeah. you know, that seems to be the tone of spirituality. And then politically, it's just straight up fascism. Whereas over here, I think it, it retains a bit more of its radical agenda. And for me, it's about being a pilgrim as opposed to uh, a president. Do you yeah. know? It's a bit more... Um, but I'm very yeah both testaments and I, I um, there it's an interesting map it's an interesting interior map as much as a an exterior story of a people yeah you know but I, don't know, I find the whole thing fascinating an interior map yeah well in that that something happened with Christ that was evolutionary that uh, you know of transcending of making some kind of link between the human and the divine. Mm. Uh, it, it, in an evolutionary way, mm. not just in a um, philosophical way. And were you brought up with it? Not at all. We had, I mean, I had such a radically strange upbringing that I'm only kind of learning to appreciate now. How so? Well, I was born in the mountains, in the wind and the rain on the cold northwest coast of Ireland. So, you, is this a, the myth of Tiernan? The myth of Tiernan. <laughs> yeah. Don't, I'm just... <laughs> no, will I try and tell it again in a much more kind of sociological way? Or no, no, I like I, it. I love it. I you, love it. I love you either it. want the poetry or you don't. I want the poetry. That's why I'm here. <laughs> but I can't, can't I take a shot occasionally? No, you can't. No, oh, just, just relax. Just, don't be interrupting. Take the tablet and if it works well and good, but <laughs> okay, so you're up there. So I'm up there, and that part of Ireland back then was um, I mean, you're for American listeners, it's Appalachian. Oh, really? So, what part is it? It's Donegal. That's where I, I was. That's where I went with Lynn the last time I was. Oh, yeah, so, you, so you've been there, so it's yeah. kind of so if you can imagine that 50 years ago. Wow, so and then at the age of three. We moved to Africa. So there's no explaining that to a child. Was that for what reason? For my dad. My dad my dad said, because he, he thought Donegal was too remote. So <laughs> we went to Africa. For, for work? Or for my dad's work. What work was that? He worked with farmers. Okay. Um, and he gave up up there? Well, he, I mean, I, I gave up what, like? I, I don't know, the farms weren't working out? Oh, or? no, no, he was, a, he was working as a teacher. Okay. He taught, he taught religion and science. Okay. Okay. Um, so he's a man who's used to living with uh, paradoxes. <laughs> yeah. um, wow, that is interesting. So, so it's an extreme, at the age of three, yeah. a, it's an imaginatively brutal thing to happen. Yeah. So you go from wind and rain and rocks, rocks and mountain, um, and also a very slow way of speaking. How's it going there now? Tell me, this is the way we're going here. And there's all this kind of talking, and it's all slow and easy, and there's no hard corners or nothing. It's just beautiful. There's no, like, there's no, yeah. you know, it, it wouldn't, it's not an accent that would suit you. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I like it, though. It's very soothing, even for four seconds. Yeah. Then, suddenly, I'm in Africa. Uh, and. You know, I used to do a line about it, which is it was like moving from a photograph to its negative. <laughs> so all of a sudden, you are an uninterrupted landscape. It's heat, it's red dust, it's animals, it's different noises. 
So I lived there for three years, and all my pals were African. Um, and you remember it from three to six. You have. I have a sense of. I've sense of. I, I've. I've looked at photo. I. In the. T- I don't remember, but I'm committed to it through storytelling. Yeah. So I know that it happened. So I'll wander with words to try and understand it. So it is almost memory a memoryless jaunt. Yeah. But it happened. Right. So I can talk about it. Sure. Imaginatively, because I don't have actual experiences to draw on. Sure. Three years of that. And then as daft and sudden the move from Africa to Africa was, then we went to London. So all of a sudden it's cement, big buildings, the rain. Yeah. And then to Ireland. Yeah. Back. And a few different towns in Ireland then. Um, but religion was never part of our house. Huh. Never. Do you have siblings? I have three younger siblings, yeah. And no religion. They were so, dragging all of them or they had some no, of them they, along they, the way? One, one, my sister Anne, who's a novelist, was born in Africa. Um, and then my two, Neve and Brian, were born in Ireland. So I... I think that that, I mean, what we do is, I was going to say it's beneath us. <laughs> uh, is it though? It, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a very, it's a strange thing we do, Mark. Uh, we talk. But, you know, I've seen you talk about it and, you, you know, and you see it the same way I do. I think kind of like, you know, people, I never set out to be an entertainer. It seems like it was more of a calling. You know, I set out to, to I thought that stand-up was some sort of... Now, hang on. So I've moved from the, the mythology of Tommy Tiernan now to the, the myth of Mark Maron. Exactly. It was a calling. I, I think I, it's a way I look at it in retrospect. Because okay. when, I saw, when, I, when I watched comedy when I was a kid, it, it made me laugh. But I thought, I thought they were geniuses. I mean, to make people see things in a way that was, was palatable and manageable because it was funny. You could break down the biggest concepts into something understandable. It gave me relief. Who, it gave me who, a point of view. Who, who did you like? you were well early on i just like some of the the older you know uh the comics I, I used to watch on tv buddy hackett jackie vernon uh and i liked uh i think when i had records i had cheech and chong i had oh, yeah. uh, carlin records oh, yeah. and the richard Pryor records but i think the 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 real birth for me was you know seeing when i was in high school i saw the richard Pryor's first movie you know when it was a movie yeah and i remember going and just being you know just shattered by you know the power of it but when I just knowing for myself, when I started doing comedy, it, I didn't set out to be an entertainer. Like I didn't say, like you know, I'm going to go entertain people. I needed to figure shit out, and I thought I had something to say. So who gave you permission to do that? In the sense of who did you see that was doing that, and you thought, okay, I don't care if nobody else has heard of this person. The fact that I've seen their work has given me permission to try what I want to do. Well, oddly, I think it, it had to do with going to a comedy club, you know, maybe when I was in college, I went to, uh, you know, I, I went to, well, in, in, also in college, I, who gave me permission? Like, who were you copying when you started? Jews, probably. I mean, I remember seeing Paul Reiser at the comic strip in New York, and the same night that Eddie Murphy dropped by, and I must have been in college, early in college, and I sat with Paul Reiser, and I brought this up to him when I talked to him, because I said, how do, you, how do you do it? How do you start doing comedy? Yeah. And he said, I, I don't know, you just gotta do it. And that was the end of advice. So when I was in college, I wrote a bit with a guy, and we auditioned for a thing. 
me and him as a comedy team. Yeah. And then we were told to do it at a club and we failed miserably. And then we were told to do it in another club and it failed miserably again. But but I think then, I don't know if there was somebody, it was not one of these things where I looked at comics and I thought that there's no way, I don't even understand how people do that. I knew there were comedy clubs yeah. by the time I was coming up. But, you know, I started doing open mics and started, you know. So I, I remember um, I tried to work as an actor f- for a little while. And it's the worst. Well, I, I also, I, I saw a guy called Phelan Drew, whose father was Ronnie Drew, who was in the famous Irish ballad group, The Dubliners. And I saw him in a show called Love and a Bottle by a guy called George Farquhar. And he played this kind of uh, knee-length, boot-wearing rake who was seducing women and just kind of moving through society, riding all around him and drinking. And, and I had no idea how that actor was doing what he was doing. I had, I just couldn't, I couldn't forensically understand his performance. And I've never had that feeling with a comic. No matter what comic I go and see, I can... Ah, you're doing that. Yeah. Ah, okay. Yeah. So it's that thing of, of what you can do. Yeah. Isn't it? And kind of going. Well, I know I can do that. Huh. So the, even the, even the strangest, most brilliant comic. Yeah. I can go. I can. Oh, I can see. Sure. So, so I was never intimidated by. Right. And with the, I, it's one of those things where it's you kind of I kind of feel, as if it's slightly unfair, that I can do this. Yeah. Because. I, it to me it's like walking. Yeah, yeah. I, I I wish it was. You know. Yeah, I understand, but I think I was intimidated watching comics. I think I was less intimidated watching actors, and I think I'm still intimidated watching comics. I think there's still guys I watch, and I'm like, fuck, I'm never gonna, you know, be that easy. It's never gonna be that easy for me. Well, well, I still find you attractive. Well, I appreciate that. as a comic. Okay, <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah. So I I'm still very drawn to you as as a. Because I think, um, and I've always, so the first one for me was Lenny Bruce. And I got into Lenny Bruce via, I was in school and I saw this guy walk past. It was 1985 with the cover. He was holding um, the vinyl version of Infidels by Bob Dylan. Yeah. I went, oh, okay, who's that guy? Yeah. So I got into Dylan. Yeah. And from Dylan then, you, uh, s- 12 months later you end up hearing about Ginsburg right. and the Beats yeah. and then you you get into Howl yeah. and I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness angel headed hipsters yeah. you know and you kind of go Jesus what is that Yeah. and then you kind of plow into that a bit more and all of a sudden this guy called Lenny Bruce right. appears and you're going you, I loved him before I'd even heard a word of out course. of his mouth. Right, that's the way. It's exactly the way. You know, yeah. and then I started listening to Live at Carnegie Hall. Oh, that's the one. And Lost wages. <laughs> Tits and ass. <laughs> Everybody's vulnerable, baby. Everybody's ass up for grabs. <laughs> it's not that Lenny Bruce is a sick comedian. It's rather that he comments on the so- parts of society that are sick. Yeah. It's from the intro. It's a Paul Krasner or somebody. Anyway, so... I didn't understand what Lenny Bruce was doing, and I and I'm in a in the west coast of Ireland. But that's the most accessible record. That one, yeah. I don't think so. I think the earlier stuff is much more obvious. Kind of Father Flotsky's triumph, with the and, big the bits and pieces. But like when yeah. the Berkeley concerts, like a, a physics, it's, it's more difficult. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I, <laughs> but I, I think that the fact that they it's an waited endurance for test. Me. Yeah, 
Yeah, but it it all connects if you listen to it over but and over also, again. But, but, yeah. but I, I fell in, and I'm yeah. still in love with the architecture of what Lenny Bruce did, even though I don't fully get everything. Yeah, architecture, uh, what it, how does it... So the drama of it, do, do, do we, that fantastic bit he does, uh, comic at the Palladium. Oh, yeah. And that's about four hours, well, it's about 28 minutes long, it's but it's, it's so it's, perfect. The guy's bombing. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then he goes, fuck the Irish. Yeah, right. <laughs> Um, yeah, that's right. That's so, right. I I think I fell in love with. I think that's the thing that made me fall in love with stand up. Yeah. Is that it was possible to be dramatic. It was possible to tell stories. Um, so he'd be the he'd be the one for me that that I was excited. And then when I started doing stand up, where did you start? Here, I started in Galway. What was the scene? There was no scene. There was a comedy club once a week. Um, who was there? Uh, so the guys were passing yeah. through were all, there weren't any kind of North Americans. Rich Hall might have passed by every now and again. Right. Do you remember Scott Capuro? Yeah. Scott would have been through, Mike Wilmot would have been through every now and again. Mike. We would have, maybe Dom Herrera would have yeah. passed through. All guys who were just at a, a level of professionalism. Uh, but I knew I could do it. Yeah. I knew I could do stand-up. And I knew, coming as an, from an, a failed acting background. How much did you act though, that, really? That, that I wasn't afraid of silence. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. So sometimes you get guys, I remember seeing guys getting up on stage and it was all, it was all fast and it was yeah, all, yeah. Uh, there was no enjoyment of the actual theatrics sure. of the situation. Well, I think we all start that way. You know? Yeah. Because I started, I, I started the other way. I emerged from the silence to the word. You know, and you definitely it. you go now. I mean, and for you know most of your career, you you keep go, you move, and then I'm physical, physical, but also you got a pace to you, you got an energy to you. Sometimes you know, but it's all I'm still figuring it out. I'm sure. still, um, and you know, so now my thing, I used to do this. I used to breathe ridiculously before going on stage. What do you mean? Oh, you mean you freak out? No, I would kind of. I would do 30 minutes of of deep breathing and holding my breath. An uh, exercise? This was an exercise? Yeah, and it was kind of an, it was an altered state. Yeah. So it was like being slightly stoned. Going Hyperventilating. On. Yeah, yeah, all yeah. that, you know. Um, and that worked for a while. You weren't drinking at the time? No. Um, uh, do you know the way, I, first time you take cocaine on stage, and you kind of go, all right, I write this, this, this is obviously this is obviously my method now. Yeah, this is the key. It, was, it, it always made me a little too fast, but it works the first time, and then you go. Everything works the first time. Yeah, <laughs> that's the name of your next album. <laughs> Except sex, oddly. That uh, you know, you'll nail it, but it won't be. It won't work. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that. That's a good title. So, uh, and then you know, the first time you, you're a little bit drunk on stage, it works. Oh yeah. Uh, I used to like weed. That was that was an okay place to be because then you kind of entertained yourself. That's what I got. What's it. where are you? Where are you with sex now? Do you mind me asking? After watching some bit you did about uh, having a hard time keeping it hard. Well, just that you brought it up that you mentioned. Where are you? Where am I? Yeah. In general, I, I'm I'm trying to. Uh, it it means a lot to me still. Sex, and having it be good. It means a lot to me still. I, I still, I think I put, you know, I'm 59 and I still think it, you know, it is right up there with probably the most, one of the most important things to me in terms of uh, making life enjoyable. 
You? Um, the the mechanics of it can be stressful, but the yeah, but the, you just gotta the physicality of it is a marvel. Yeah. The, the, the well, skin the, on skin is true. A the mechanics, marvel. you just have to find someone with patience. <laughs> you just have to find someone with patience. That after a certain point, you know, you reach yeah. a level of desperation when you're a certain age. And yeah, sure, it, it'll work with two people who want to make it work. And it's a different, because um, I'm married now. and uh, How long have you been married? Um, since 2009. Was that 13 years? Okay. Um, uh, so the the... The familiarity of that, yeah, never, and I, I kind of I'm able to say it out loud because it's true. Uh, it never becomes, I never take it for granted, and it never becomes boring. I can't believe sometimes that this other human being wants to get naked with me. You know, I think that you know, as you get older, it becomes harder to to be with. You know, strangers are trying to be out there doing that. Yeah, it's a little, uh, a little sad and a little exhausting. But I think as I get older, that you know, and and what I just told you, which is, you know, if you know what you want, you can be honest about it, and then you know, work it out. You find out what the other person wants. I think that evolves in a relationship. Is there, is there a, a kind of there's a tension between what you want, what you're capable of? Sometimes, <laughs> but you keep at it, and you know, and you. you it gets a little sweaty, but you'll get there. Okay, okay. <laughs> you know. um, a friend of mine said many years ago, he said, there comes a stage in your life when you move from the love adventure to the death adventure. Yeah, I'm definitely there. And he said the death adventure is actually more interesting. Well, how, what is the, uh, the the spectrum of that? What what are the uh, the signposts of the death adventure? Aren't, I mean, at some point you realize, you know, I, th- I think first intellectually that we're all on a death adventure but then it becomes very you know practical and day-to-day the death adventure you know when you go to the doctor or when you wake up and you feel a certain way and your concerns become different like i did it last night i had heartburn last night and i'm like am i gonna fucking die in my sleep in ireland i guess there are worse ways to go you didn't write a note or anything no no (laughs) that would be sad if you wake up like this might be the night every day that's the note you leave on I don't know if it's going to happen, but I love everybody and whatever. Um, but the but the what is the death adventure really? <laughs> is part of it uh, taking yourself seriously and taking your soul seriously and saying, okay, I can run around the world and I can um, sociologically, financially, creatively, I can try and make a name for myself or feel good about what I do or survive. But actually, is there something else going on? Is there something else I need to pay attention to? I don't know how long. Like I met a friend of mine recently and he said he had a tremendous heart attack and was rescued from the edge and brought back. And he said to me, uh, if I die now, I know that there are two or three people out there who have benefited benefited from the fact that I was alive. So he told me the story. It happened when he was 26 or 27 and he was working as a teacher in a small Irish town. A 16-year-old girl that he knew from his hometown arrived on his doorstep, pregnant. Mm. She'd been thrown out. 
and disregarding the optics of what it looked like, 26-year-old guy and a 16-year-old pregnant girl, he said, move in with me. And she more or less stayed indoors in the house for the rest of the pregnancy. Yeah. Went to give birth. He contacted the parents, had a big fight with them, persuaded them. They never wanted to see her again, persuaded them to come and meet the baby. <clears throat> Everything was all fine. He says, I know that that girl, that 16-year-old girl who's now 45-year-old mother, benefited from the fact that I was alive. So and then I started thinking about that. Jesus, am I able to look back on my life and say the same thing? I can say that I entertained people. I can say that I, you know, that I made people laugh or with the chat show yeah. that I do here, that, sure. that it was kind of, you know, it meant something to Irish people. But I mean, does the same, where does my life fall on that kind of measuring scale? Yeah. So stuff like that, I think, comes up when you start thinking about death. You know, that the death adventure is asks big questions of you. And this guy said to me that he thought the death adventure was more interesting. Well, there's also the list of people you might want to apologize to. <laughs> you know, uh, you know how, how can I... Is there any way I can... That great Cohen line, I know you can't forgive me, but forgive me anyhow. Yeah. That's, you know... Well, that was that's one of the genius things. If there's any genius to to a 12 step recovery it's that fourth step you know it's that list of uh you know uh the 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 inventory of where you're at fault so you can see exactly who you are on a character defect basis and you can you know make that amends list who do you owe this to who can you do this to uh where it won't damage yourself or others or or put you in a, in a problem how what's that list look like and you get to do that that's a good one are you are you good at having fun I'm getting better. That's, that's my part of my death experience. My uh, death awareness is that you know, it's, I know I have limited time. What are I don't know about fun, but what are the things? <laughs> that's, a, that's another great album title. <laughs> but what are I the don't th- know about fun. But I think joy might be possible. Um, you, you know, in in, in a genuine way, and, and allowing myself to feel that I have a I have a very you know pretty strong defense mechanism against the vulnerability of happiness. Uh, and and joy. I don't know why. I I don't know why I I don't allow myself, or it doesn't happen naturally to feel it. I, I'm 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 curious about fun and how and how to have fun. I, I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm very good at it. I have extremes. So the extreme of being on stage, you know, and that uh, gallop of laughter that is, you can hear the the, the hooves. Yeah. Are you still hooked on it? Oh, totally. Oh. Totally. I, I, if I could, I'd probably gig seven nights a week. Huh. Um, I've been gigging more than I ever have, and, and, and I've never been more engaged with it and, and excited about it. And, and, I, and I think it comes on the heels of, you know, not just the pandemic, but also, you know, the passing of somebody. And, and I think it, it, it is saving me to a certain degree. I've never enjoyed it as much as I do now. Um, but I, I, it's been a long time since I've been, like, feeling... You know, a lot of people talk about that, uh, the addiction to getting the laugh. Like, I, I don't know, you, you know, I, I've been sort of preoccupied with the, with sort of like the craft of it and molding it and, and, and figuring out ways I can take off and improvise and stuff. Yeah. And I, but I, I'm not like, you know, beat to beat. I'm not hooked on that, you know. I, there's always a risk to it with me still. And I imagine with you too, that like, I don't know if the next thing's going to work. 
without like getting in the groove. Yeah, my approach is slightly different now, which is um, I have a show. Yeah, you have a talk show. I have. Well, no, I mean, I have a talk show, but I also have a, like a stand-up. I have a set that you've been working on. Yeah. So what, what I um, it's that thing then of okay, how do I make this fresh every night? And I've, and I've how hit, do you? Well, I've hit I've hit on a few kind of things. And they're all sentences that people say to me. So I'm very open to suggestion. And I'm very taken by... And something that somebody... Like load up and go, that thing that I heard you say, that's been with me for years. You know? Um, so I, I take sentences that I hear and they just... They... I live with them for a long time. Um, so a guy that I was touring with said to me one time, he said, prepare meticulously, but once you step onto the stage, abandon all preparation. For sure. So that, that lives with me. That's a jazz thing. You know what I mean? And that just, I... I um, it's an acting thing too. Is it? Well, I mean, that's the thing that people say that like, you know, it, you do all the work and then, you know, when the time comes to, to you know, do it, you do all the preparation, you, you lose the work. You know, you don't you don't think of the work. Anymore. Yeah, that's a hard thing to do. That's it. Well, we've been doing it our, all our lives. So. <laughs> yeah, and I I found when I was the past say four or five years of doing stand up, it was taking me so much longer to get a show together, and I wasn't as inventive on stage as I used to be. I used to go on, I used, I would start a tour with a fairly shit show, and I would know within ten days it would be flying. Yeah. I'd, I just would have that. Well, you just have some ideas, some stories, some things yeah. that were interesting to you that you needed to work out. But in the past four or five years, after six months, I'd still feel as if the show was shit. Do you have less to work out? Are you more comfortable? No, do you know what it was? It was, I I turned a corner in, again, it's something you hear. Yeah. Words. No, relax, this guy said. <laughs> relax as much as you possibly can. Uh-huh. And I just started doing that. And all of a sudden, I'm thinking of stuff on stage now. So to me, it was... So now I'm on that buzz. As opposed to the hyperventilating buzz got me through the first six months of the year. And now this, relax. Just walk out. Relax. Yeah, so you're a little rusty or something. No, not rusty. It's just that you, it's, you're calm. You're in charge. Sure. You're thinking. Yeah. You're working stuff out while at the same time you know that in your arms you have these wonderful stories you can drop in anytime sure. you want and you're so. also you know here anyways you're you, you know people love you you're, thousands of people come to see you and they'll they'll they they uh, have a, a tremendous amount of patience and excitement they know you so if you relax they relax and then you can all sort of organically move towards something yeah you know it's easier said than done no i get it you yeah. know you want to uh, show up with new shit and you know you want to be creative you want to yeah. feel alive and but where are you at in terms of disposition i mean like you know the arc of you i mean how has your style changed you think i try i, I no more than what i was saying earlier on about um if you're fully in control of something it's mm -hmm. not interesting mm -hmm. so i don't know what the style is or i well just intensely tr try not to question it too much well, you're more relaxed We've i'm more relaxed yeah. but what that also does is Bob Dylan said this amazing thing. He said, never give 100%. Yeah, I'm, I'm all about that. Good for you. And <laughs> that's... And don't prepare. That's good. That's 
and that is I found that liberating because mm. I would have been somebody who tried to eat the audience while I was on stage you know just try and gather them and claw them and devour oh so you you heard room. this you heard this mid career you heard that yeah, yeah, yeah. recently oh, 6 recent. months ago oh wow mm. never give yeah. 100% and that is just so i've i've been watching some of his performances you know and there are times when he's just what are you doing oh yeah you can't even understand it he's just he's like he's he's there in front of you but he's actually he's moonwalked off the stage yeah. and oh, he's yeah. in the van um but what I've found that, that, so I consciously try and do that as well. Yeah. Consciously try and just pull back. And what I found is that that, that in terms of en- an energized performance, then you get like taking ecstasy. When you, you, all of a sudden this rush of energy comes up and you have no option but to express it. Yeah. So I find that that's, it's not just the, the, not giving 100% and the whole performance is lethargic. It's it opens a door for other energies. And Dylan is the same. Like he'd be, he, Dylan might play two or three songs where you're going, okay, it's a little, a little uh, something. Or I can't. And then all of a sudden he's in his full body and he's glinting. But each one makes the other possible. So, I'm in, so I'm in, as a performer, I'll take advice from anybody. Mm. Um... And I'm inspired by loads of different things. So, but I'm still intrigued by it. I'm still. Oh yeah. I still walk off stage every night, going, "Oh, that was great," but I could push that bit, or, or yeah. I, you know. So I, I still love it. Yeah. What, I, what I'm not in love with so much, perhaps, is the road. Oh yeah. Um, it's hard for me internationally, but I, I tend to like it when I'm at home. If I can stay at a nice place and I'm only away for a few days at a time, this trip has been two and a half weeks too long for me at this point. Gets, I get a little, little squirrely, untethered. But in terms of what you're saying about performing, yeah, I, I always try to make interesting choices with the freedom you have from being relaxed after a lifetime of doing this. That at some point you can, you sort of have total liberty and total freedom to, to kind of try whatever you want. And and just so, because you know in your mind that if something doesn't land, you've got plenty to. You, you're not gonna. It's not. It's not going to be the end of you. That that's not my thing my thing is that is to give the audience it's paradoxical yeah. i want to give the i want the audience to be swept away i want them to i want the show to whirl and lift and stop hmm. and drive and quiet and loud and but it's about it's so it's not about allowing failure it's about somehow accessing the engine, my engine that is, this all sounds highfalutin, that is in, is, is in simpatico, is that the right word? It's yeah. in tandem with yeah. theirs. Sure. Um, yeah. So it's, it's not about, it's not, it's not so much about embracing failure. It's but I'm, about I'm, risk. I, I don't know if, right, okay, okay. right. I'm, I'm not, maybe failure was the wrong word, but you know that, you know, if you're in that, no matter what, you know, risk you take, that, you know, it's not going to undermine you. That, you know, you, you, you're you in a zone. So, like, if, if something, if you're going somewhere and it doesn't go where you want it to go, you just go another place. Sure. If, yeah. it's, it's that thing about, about, about finding the zone. Sure. But, but going back to the, the sort of, like, it seems that, like... Are we lonely, Mark? Are we lonely people? Uh... 
Yeah. But this is an opportunity. So, so I've been a huge. Um, you're always someone that I w- I would listen to. Mm. We're not necessarily going to spend a fierce amount of time together off stage, mm-hmm. but I recognize in you, like I said earlier on, a fellow traveler. Yeah. So, this is an opportunity. Yeah. For me, in a to talk to somebody in an honest way. Okay. Who I feel is somehow is he, you're my cousin. Okay. Yeah, I feel that. Yeah. Yeah, you know what I mean. So, and I'm happy you look better. I, in Montreal, you look a little frazzled. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm trying to make. I'm trying to do the Larry David thing of make of of being unashamedly bald. It's. I think you look a lot better. When I saw you in Montreal, there was frizzes. There was no haircut. And I'm like, oh my God, what's, what's happening? happening to Tommy? <laughs> he he's looks like he's aged 40 years. I haven't seen him in a couple of years. It was like a Danny DeVito across with Nick Nolte look. Oh, so I, you know what I'm talking about. I was going for you. But oh. I, was going, I, was, I was embracing that. I was going, I'm not going to hide my bald spot. I'm not going to. You look great now. It's not hiding anything, but the hair is cut and your know, yeah. hair is trimmed. I was like, oh my, is he all right? <laughs> I, was at, I literally said, is he all right? How, yeah. Are you? It, it gave me energy. Okay. <laughs> I was concerned. I'm like, it must have been hard. You have a full head of tremendous hair. You're you're, you're starting to look like a character from Deadwood. You have it's a magnificent f- moustache, great sideburns, it's, stubble. It's fine hair. And, and anger. I'm, I'm lucky, yes. But uh, but I was con- I was literally asking people, like, what's gone on with him in the last couple of years? It was, it was, just a, it was a decision. Show. It was a decision. <laughs> but like, Sartorial. Like, well, what were you saying about loneliness? But about, about, just about, I mean, you know, um, the, and I don't know how... You've interviewed so many comics and performers and all that type of stuff. Uh, yeah. That thing of, if you have that moment of extreme communion yeah. with other people, guaranteed yeah. at night, yeah. it kind of gives you permission to be solitary during the day. Yeah. Because you know you've got this mass in the evening. Are you, you know- good at solitary? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What do you do with it, though? I mean, like, for me, like, I- I'm really, especially when I travel... I, the world of my head and the world of the world are profoundly different places. And, you know, and I can react to what's going on in my head as if it's real. And sometimes it's being generated against my will. And, and, and like sometimes solitary time, I live to be in connection like, like this, like you and I talking, like the podcast has become, you know, a, a, a big part of my social life and, and sort of nurturing to me in terms of, the type of conversations we have. But if I wander alone, eventually I feel invisible. As a cloud? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it feels like that. I'm just a vapor moving <laughs> through the world. But uh, so like, and part of the challenge just that I've been doing with, even in this two weeks, because this is the longest trip I've taken post pandemic. Um, it's just sort of like, you know, dude, you know, it's, it, you're still tethered. You know, you're of the world. You know, don't lose your fucking mind just because you're away for two weeks. Uh, do you have enough gigs in the two weeks to keep you tethered? Not this time. Okay. But yeah, but I have had a lot of conversations. Okay, so, yes. Then. Okay. I've had, you know, three, there's going to be three stand-up shows and like five conversations. Okay. So, yeah, it's been good. And I love coming here. I like coming to Dublin. Yeah. Yeah. I like the bread. I like the the feel of the air. I like the way the place do you drink? looks. No, I don't drink. No, it's bad. I haven't drank in 23 years, 24 oh, really? years. Oh, okay. Well, you you were sober for a while? For eight years, and then my wife asked me to start drinking again. And have you handled it? Sometimes. I drink whiskey. I think it's too... Um, Why were you sober? 
I was sober because I was a splash of a man. Does that make sense? I was just splashing everywhere. <laughs> it's a it's 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 a nice way to say something. Yeah, I, I Dis- imagine it's the, there, Dis- it's the Disney version. Sure, there, I imagine there were some violent waves <laughs> during the splashing. Yeah, a couple of a couple of close calls. <laughs> In terms of drowning. Uh, there you go. So the splashing a lot of times was you flailing in yeah. the water. Yeah. I was just too... Um, but you knew this when you were a young man, obviously, in order to stop. No, I, I just... I think sometimes you need uh, three warnings. Mm. You yeah. know. And I got my first warning. I kind of went, oh, okay. That's that's interesting. I got the second warning. I went, mm, yeah, yeah. And the third one, I, it was real easy. It was the third warning came. I went, okay, this is real easy. I'm stopping. What was it? I you can't tell you. No, I I'll tell you one of them, which I, I've kind of almost turned into a um. Through if, the through the telling of the story, yeah. you don't t- have to accept responsibility for the seriousness of the situation. Sure, it becomes uh, cute a tale yeah. that you work. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I was, I started taking, this particular day, I started taking Coke about two o'clock in the afternoon. It was a long, long time ago. For any bastard journalists out there listening, you might want to turn it into a headline. You started snorting some Coke in the middle of the day. Yeah, because you been, t- t- about two or three o'clock in the afternoon. I know that day. Yeah. Then I got to the gig and I started drinking and taking the Coke and then... God, he must have had a nice amount of Coke. Yeah. Okay. And I wasn't sharing it. Yeah. What <laughs> are those? Yeah. Well, if you're going to start at two and not want to go to the dealer by five, you got to have pretty well set up. Uh, yeah. And then, so... And I don't want to glorify any of this because I have, you know, I've got six kids. Six? Yeah. And I don't want people to... I, all I'd say about drugs is I'm glad I'm not curious anymore. Yeah. Well, now's the terrible time to do them because everything could be the last drug you do just because of what someone puts in it. So sure. That should be... I mean, when when we were doing drugs, when I was doing drugs, it was like you kind of knew you know, it might not be all the drug that you think you're taking, but whatever it wasn't, wasn't going to kill you. No, you're robust enough. But no, but no one's robust enough to fight fentanyl and they're just sticking that in everything. Yeah. So it's very... Powders and pills are a big risk. Go ahead. Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm telling this story in a kind of slightly light-hearted way, but I, um, because I have the privilege of survival. Yes. Um, you get to the gig. Uh, get to the gig. I start drinking and blah blah, blah and then I take ecstasy. And oh my then god! I, then I leave the club. Yeah. At two o'clock in the morning with right. a f- with a full bottle of vodka. Oh yeah. Uh, I go to a twenty-four hour pool hall where I play by myself. You know, more drugs, more drink. And I go to an early house. Yeah. What's that? A pub so an, that an early house early? Is, are, they're usually bars down by the docks. Yeah. Where the sailors all come in. Uh-huh. <laughs> Perhaps you'll pick them out again. Yeah. This, How long must this, he wait? This is going to be an interesting story. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a lot was So on. I got talking to this guy with yeah. one eye who used to work on the... It's like a thing from a Tom Waits anecdote. Yeah. I got talking to this guy with one eye who used to work on the on the railroad... And 11 o'clock in the morning, I went in and that was the last of the cocaine. Yeah. And uh, Wow, that's a good amount. I went, I went back to the, my hotel and on the way I collapsed in the street and woke up in hospital. And uh, I had all these wires sticking out of me. And, yeah. 
um, I had a big cut on my head from where I collapsed. I collapsed outside a hairdresser's and the women inside called an ambulance. Um, and I woke up and I was still a bit out of it and the doctors were asking me questions and I couldn't really respond to anything. And um, I had another gig in the same club that night. So at six o'clock, I just untethered myself from all the different things yeah. and walked down and did my next show. Yeah. So that was the first warning I got. That was the first one. Yeah. That's a pretty dramatic one. Yeah. That's it. And, but then, you know, I, I don't really, I haven't accepted. It's a story. Do you know, sometimes you tell stories. Of course. Because you don't. And, you, and then when you, somebody comes up to you and goes, oh my God. Yeah. That was horrible. And you're like, what? Yeah. You don't. It's almost, a, it's that, like maybe that thing you were saying earlier on where you use the storytelling as a defense mechanism of having to deal with it sure because you're in control of the experience when it's a story that's true when somebody else comes at you and goes so can we dig into that a little bit and how did you feel yeah i can't oh fuck that you know look it's a story you know that's interesting though um, that, that element of it because like i've done you know material like that and people are like oh my god are you okay i'm like what are you talking about yeah, it's a story <laughs> don't you realize i do this to avoid the feelings yeah totally <laughs> yeah <laughs> Um, so I was I was eight years off drink and uh, and I started again. It was it was all fine, really. Uh, no, stay no, fine. Stay fine. I get I get too drunk sometimes, you know. But it's like it, that's easily done with whiskey. But it's not life ruining drunk. No, it's just what what I realized about drink is that you know people say oh it's a it's a depressant. Yeah. And I would go, what are you talking about? I feel wonderful. It's the next day that you feel depressed. Yeah, especially but, as you get older, right? You know, yeah. we kind of go. Why am I? Why is my mood so low at two o'clock in the afternoon? Depleted. When there is no need for me to be this, uh, for the for me to be beating this slowly. There is no need. And then you kind of go, hang on a minute. I got. I was a little bit twizzled last night. I I drink every day, and I drink whiskey every day. Well, I mean, the I guess the key is like when you have that moment at, in the afternoon when yeah. you're feeling that and asking those questions. That you don't start drinking then. Oh, no, no, no. I always, I wait till everybody I love is in bed. <laughs> and just drink alone? And then I, I, I drink alone a lot, yeah. yeah. But then, you know, I was, so I was drinking alone in my hotel room last night. I was drinking whiskey. And I said, I kind of, is this weird? You know, people say, we should never drink alone. And I met this man one time who yeah. lived on his own yeah. in a cottage on the side of a hill. Yeah. And he says, I, I drink a lot, but I, I never drink on my own in the house. And then I remembered a photograph I saw of Bob Dylan yeah. drinking whiskey on his own. I said, well, that, that, that gives me permission. If he does it. Yeah, it seems like you use Dylan as a point of reference quite a bit. He's one of, yeah, he'd be a star in the sky that I'd navigate by. Yeah. You know, I am a, uh, I'm a minor, a kind of, I'm not a star. I'm a kind of, I'm a local poet. And sometimes local poets can be silenced when they get intimidated by the Nobel laureate. So I have to be careful with, say, someone, with artists who are so much better than I am. I have to, I have to be really careful that, I, that they don't, because they're so profoundly brilliant. Yeah. Like who? Well, I mean... Uh, I like the local poet thing, and I like that, you know, you understand your place in the world that you occupy. Yeah. So, for example, if I read too much about Dylan, or I just... It, I, 
I ca- I'm I end up paralyzed by the fact that I'm so jealous that I'm not him. Oh, I just went to they have a Bob Dylan Center now in Tulsa. Yeah, I went to. Don't, the oh no, don't go. It'll. it'll oh, went, really? Yeah, but the weird thing is, is like you know, I saw the the sort of. Um, all the different versions of Tangled Up in Blue, the notebooks and notebooks. Yeah. And my thought was like, I write notebooks. <laughs> I, mean, I know I'm not going to be doing it with yeah. a, a less interesting uh, museum, but but I do write notebooks. There's a song called Dignity mm. that he filled He filled 59 pages, uh, and it ends up, it's a four-minute song. Sure. And you just, be, you just, you know, you end up comparing yourselves to these, yeah. what are they? I mean, he's yeah. a country yeah. Uh, and you're a village yeah. and you just go, oh, is there even any reason in my trying to do what I do? So I need to be careful, maybe careful. Yeah, Dylan would be the main one that I'm kind of very wary of of becoming too enamored with. And you remember things he said. You'd never let other people get your kicks for you. You know what I mean? So, okay, that's that's the thing. Okay, yeah. Stop listening to me is what yeah. he's saying. <laughs> yeah you're not me i'm not even he's me. got good boundaries yeah exactly exactly you know, so, so but also intimidation though like you know you've been getting in trouble for for saying things before cancel culture yeah i got in trouble for saying things but i never got into trouble with the audience i was saying it to uh-huh so that makes it okay that that legitimizes it 100 percent. i'm in a room I say something. If I say something to you and you laugh, it's yeah. automatically legitimate. Uh-huh. If somebody hears what we've been talking about right. and takes obse- and, and takes exception to it, that's none of their business. It is none of their business. We were talking in the room and it would it we made each other laugh. That's all we were trying to do. If I'm talking in a room of 400 people and this I say something shocking. Yeah. But they laugh. Yeah. It's You're off the hook? 100%. Even if two people are crying? Now you're complicating the narrative. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's really about the two people crying. That, no, no, this is, that's a difference. That, oh, in, diff- my, in my memory, that's not what happened. <laughs> in my memory, they were all laughing. Oh, okay. Yeah, I get it. I if, get it, it. if two people are crying, then, then the two people should come up and say, we took obsession to that. Yeah. They, and you will say what? No, so I'm, I, 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 I am often, I'm more upset by stuff I say than anybody else. Uh-huh. So, when you get away with it? No, when, because I'm, I, it's a position of power, yeah. being on stage. Uh, it's also a position of extreme irresponsibility. Mm. And that's the, that's the delight of it. Right. Is to come out and to be feckless. Mm. And to be the outsider and say whatever comes into your head and to, for people to know that you're joking. Sure. But I would, if, if one person in the room gets upset at what I say, I feel awful. Sometimes that one person is just me and I feel awful. Yeah. So it's, I, it's not a thing of uh, being a kind of a bulletproof blaster at all. Uh, but it is a thing of going, If hang on, if it worked in the room, that's the only place it was supposed to work. You can't, I used to say, it's like, sometimes you might say something to your partner during sex. Yeah. That's, no, yeah, that's yeah. not appropriate at the breakfast table. Well, yeah, none of it is. Okay, so yeah. stand-up is the same to me. That it worked in the moment, leave it and move on. 
given that Ireland in and of itself has become more progressive than than America in a lot of ways, uh, politically and otherwise, like, is there, do you temper yourself no. at all? Do you no. change your disposition no. about the voices you do, about the approach you no. do? No, you can't. You have to be uh, giddy. You Once you start... But you're not doubling down, you're just being what you are. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not after anything, I'm just going out and seeing what happens. And I trust everything, because I, I trust my intention. And my intention is to, I'm, I'm, no, you can, you, can, you can have more than one intention, but I trust myself on stage. Absolutely. And I, and I know that if I stop, if I start censoring myself on stage, it's over. The, you're no longer uh, energized and you're no longer unpredictable to watch. You're no longer thrilling. You're, because the, the, the instinct that can say, that can lead you to say, you to say something shocking is also the instinct that makes you reach for the sky in terms of saying something holy. No, yes, there's nothing better than saying something profound, shocking, and and new. Uh, but but I, even just even going for a mo- uh, reaching for a moment, yes, that is so other. That is so yeah, transgression. Or something? No, no, tra- not transgression. No, transcendence. Yes. Okay. Now you can be you can transgress a few minutes later, but it's just the, but to it, follow it, this follow the impulse. Sure, but it's it's actually transcendence through transgression. A lot of times when we're talking about taking the the risk of of saying the thing that you want to say, even we, you're trusting yourself, but you we're talking about controversy. We're talking about saying things. No, we're not. Tra- no, no, they're, 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 no. I'm saying that you can say something yeah. that people can't believe you right. said. That's it. And then ten minutes later, that silence. And people are going, what's happening? What the fuck is happening? Uh-huh. And you know in your heart that because you got a good heart, you didn't hurt anybody. It's exciting. Yeah. And it's holy. And it's... So, I, you know, I... I um, when you say... It's you, unfair sometimes, you know, to what me. What is? It's unfair sometimes for journalists to, to... It doesn't seem to happen as much as... There was a kind of a fever of it. Mm. A lot of people, you know... Um, there was a fever. I think it's. I think it's passed. I think people in the room. I think if people in the room get offended, it's stand up is theoretically democratic, mm. so they're entitled to say that's not funny, and then you deal with it there and then. Right, or they can leave. Or they can leave, but I, I really, uh, that would, uh, I really do. I remember doing material before, many many years ago, that it was a character that was racist and sexist and everything mm-hmm. and then and would go through a list of his grievances and through the telling of the story you realized that at the end of it the character was on his own in a room hoping and praying that the people that he said that he hated would actually come and visit him but it was a kind of a it was a very subtle revelation and it was uh, I didn't do the character in a different voice. I didn't introduce the character. I just launched into this tirade. Yeah. I hate, and then yeah. just fill in the gap. Right. And I remember once uh, a person walked out of the show, and uh, I remember going, "Okay, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not that. It's not working. It's not clear enough to everybody what I'm doing. It's clear to me, but it's not clear to them. So I'm dropping it." 
So that was a, 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 a sort of craft issue. It was also a hurt issue. I, I, that, but you didn't want to contextualize it. You'd rather drop it. You I, didn't want to set it up differently. No, I don't want to over-explain it. It, would, it made sense to me, not to them. Okay, it's gone. We're done with it. Move on. What's the new show about? I don't know. If I knew what the new show was about, there'd be no point in doing it. But it's coming together? It's ready no, to it's, go? No, it's, 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 it's been together for the past 10 months. I have it. It's, it's there. It's, it, to me, it's about staying one st- it, It's about simultaneously being one step ahead of the audience and at the same time taking them with you. So you give them what they expect, but not in a way that they expect it. And you, there has to be times during the show where they have no idea what's happening or what's going to happen next. So I tell, there's some very clean stand-up. There's some very well-structured, classic, old-school story stand-up. Bulletproof in the sense that I know it works. Yeah. There are other stories then where we talk about darker things and you, you have a sense of the audience going, where the fuck is this going? And then we get into a bit of filth at the end just to run Classic, uh, Classic filth ending. Just, <laughs> just you know, um, yeah, so that's that's the shape of the show at the moment. Let's see, uh, Bill Hicks called it, I think, Dick Joke Island, where you land after the, the arc. <laughs> That's all from me. Totally, everyone leaves. Uh, <laughs> a friend of mine said something very interesting the other day. He said uh, the audience should leave in feeling better than they did when they came in. That's a g- good thing to ponder on for a while. Yeah, and I guess it's like up to anybody uh, in terms of who's doing it, how 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 they're going to try to make that happen. But I, I remember going to see you in Montreal. <laughs> yeah. And what made you feel like there wasn't a happy ending or anything. But uh, what <laughs> I know. <laughs> when was that? It was in a very small room. It was probably, um, you were, i tell you when it was, you were 200 episodes into the podcast. Okay. Because yeah. I remember you gave some sort of speech uh, in... Oh, that was right. The, the, that was the, uh, the keynote. Star- no, the keynote. this is right. in Starbucks. You just stood up and started talking. <laughs> It felt like it was a very emotional thing to be asked to do that. Yeah. Because I was always so threatened in Montreal that there were just so many people that were so much funnier than me. So I had to sort of be honest. And I did that speech and it worked out okay. It was fantastic. Got some good laughs. I also remember you met your manager or your agent in the foyer of the hotel. And he said, hey, Marin, M-A-R-O-N. Remember me? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Um, Not with them anymore. Are you still with Becky? I don't do enough in America, really, to no. to justify having representation. Is that a disappointment to you? Um, I, I, I just want to. I just want. I just want to do what I do. Yeah. Okay. That's a so odd kind of, answer. I've kind of lost the. I've lost any geographical ambition. Um. But do you feel like you tried? I, not really. I yeah. I kind of uh, I didn't knock on the door. I kind of looked in the window. and right. I wasn't invited in, so mm-hmm. I said, "Okay, that's okay." Um, but I'd I'd like I well, I got a big thrill this year of playing Montreal, playing to people who didn't really know me. Yeah, and I loved that. And I did a tour of the UK. Again, it's the same thing where people didn't really know me. I loved that. So How did I, they not know you? They came to see you, right? It's so adorable. well. I, I, they came to see, but I'm. It's kind of like a a date as opposed to a 
uh, taking your wife out to dinner. Be- okay. Does that make sense? No, I get it. I get it. But, I, but but there are people not unlike me. Like you must see people your age in the audience that have grown up with you. N- no, I, what I see is, say in Montreal, I saw people who maybe had seen me once or twice in Montreal before, but that was it. Okay. Seen a few things on TV. But here, here are people. In Ireland, in Ireland it's a bit different. Um, I'm almost part of the establishment here now. Right, okay, yeah. In that I started doing stand-up and I became very well-known quite quickly here. Yeah. Um, and then I started to get into trouble for stuff that I've said, but that, that was a... Del- some of that was accidental and joyful. Yeah. And some of it was... Uh, it was like an assassination attempt by scurrilous journalists and newspapers. Um, so then people didn't know and then I went through a phase of being kind of wild and angry and that people kind of said oh I don't really like him anymore mm. and then I started doing in the past year this chat show that's uh, great it, I, don't you love doing that well it's a little I would say I love doing it because it's, it's a little bit different again it, no more than when I started stand up looking at Lenny Bruce and kind of going wow um, I started the chat show because of Letterman. Mm. And I loved the way he was able just to be funny and he never had to do that line again. Mm-hmm. And I, I said, okay, well, well, I'd like to do something like that. But the twist that I have to my chacho is, so it goes out, it's it's prime time on Saturday night, but the twist of the chacho is, I have no idea who's walking on to be interviewed. Oh, I see. You really don't? I have no idea. Oh, okay. So... There's three guests per night. Sometimes they're famous. Sometimes they're ordinary members of the public. But I have no idea who's coming. Oh, that's on. exciting. Uh, and the that has landed in a way with this country. That is again, I can't fully explain the show or understand why people like it. Or it's that thing of it's slightly beyond my control. I can't really define it. So that has kind of... They re- love it though. People love it. Yeah. Um, that has re-established me in the m- minds of most people in Ireland as, okay, we like that. Yeah. He's he's okay. Whereas <laughs> I, I was out, you know, I was the lunatic with the broken vodka bottle on the hill screaming at the primary school children and they were kind of going, we don't like him. But now I'm in the town making shoes yeah, as well. Yeah. Oh, look, the cobbler. <laughs> yeah. Remember when he was angry? Yeah. He still gets angry every now and again. He goes, is that him? Can't be. But you're saying that when you go out and do the UK and stuff, that, that there is a new audience. Or in yeah. Montreal, there is a new audience. And I love that. And so someone said to me, okay, Tommy, um, your wife and kids are going to travel with you. You're going to spend the next year traipsing around the States doing shows. I'd say sign me up for that, please. I'd love that. I would love to, really, I would love to play to people who aren't familiar with me. I'm confident enough with what I do on stage to know I'm not going to be broken by the experience and I have enough uh, yeah, competence to kind of manage the moment. When was the last time you did that, a tour <coughs> of the States? Uh, I haven't been, I, I did a, a comics. I did comics comedy club in New York in the, yeah, but a, a long time ago. That's, that was a beautiful place that lasted 10 minutes. Really? That all? It was, that was oh, a lovely... Gone. Lovely place. Treated you well, paid you good. Absolutely. Put you up in a nice hotel. Absolutely. Closed in a year. <laughs> Something like that. Um, so, so yeah. What, I, how old is your youngest kid? 
My youngest boy is 10. Oh, so you've really... And my oldest is 29. And I have a granddaughter as well. Two wives? Two people. Two, one, people. Wa- one, one wife. Yeah. One girlfriend. Okay. That, so how many with the... Three and three. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so I started very young, you know... Um, Get along with all of them? Uh, yeah, I do. My kids are great. I think that the thing about my experience of having children is that it's a it's the it's the call to relationship. So there's an opportunity for relationship all the time. Yeah. Now, I'm not a great dad. Uh, I I'm not practical. I'm not. Part of me actually doesn't know how to be a dad. I don't know what they want. Um, a friend of mine said one time, shelter. It's your duty as a father to provide shelter. And that can be physical, financial. I wouldn't be great at emotional shelter. But I'm there. And it's the call to relationship. So I, I, I'm, I need totems. I'm one of those people who need totems. So... Uh, these all the tattoos I have they're all I, my mind needs hmm. think, Tommy don't forget don't forget because uh, yeah. I, I can guess I can, I can it's like it's almost like living in a monastery that has we pray at 7 we pray at 10 we have lunch at 12 we work from 2 to 5 there's a the day is marked and in a kind of fucked up way the tattoos are like that for me are kind of going don't forget don't forget don't forget so the next one I'm going to get is just the names of my kids as a thing of relationship you have this relationship you've because a lot of time on your own you know in hotel rooms in towns where you don't live and you're kind of what am I going to do all day I'm going to buy a book and I'll watch a movie and then I'm it's so self-indulgent even though you have this orchestra of an evening waiting for you uh, so I need the totems I need the kind what of what do the tattoos mean so the, there's a tattoo of a bird on my hand and to me that's about instinct and that maybe your instinct isn't always bad Tommy maybe in the way that you look at a bird fluttering here there and everywhere obeying its own impulses and do you, you have a dead bird on the other hand no <laughs> <laughs> And then, so I look at that and I go, okay, you're yeah. in, instinct. The four of my fingers are the four evangelists. And that's a reminder that outside of the church, outside of Catholicism and the Pope, that I get something out of reading the Gospels. I, away from dogma, away from orthodoxy, away from just a private encounter between me and this story. And the radical nature of the Gospels. I get something out of that. So they all mean something. Um, so, uh, yeah, so the, so the thing with the children is that it's, a, it's an opportunity. Like, so say a person without children is on their own. That's me. In a room in a hotel. Yes, yeah, me. Okay. Yeah. And you're thinking, well, what am I going to do today? And from when I'm in that situation... I have a thing, okay, I have six children and I can phone any of them up and have a conversation. 
and, and they're I, like, "Oh, Dad's in a hotel again." Yeah, well, I, think, I think I think one of my daughters is definitely, "Hey there, <laughs> are, you, are you alone in a hotel?" Yeah. Okay, Dad. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's like that. So it's it's yeah. a, it's a it's a cultural relationship. Where where are you with Jesus? I don't understand most of it. I don't under. I buy a lot of books about Jesus, and I don't understand the vast majority of it. Mm. I don't. I don't. When people talk about, I have a relationship with. I go, what, where, how? I don't. Yeah. Uh, I don't get that. I. Uh, there's a, a line from um, the Gospel according to Luke. Uh, Sell all you have and come follow me. Now, now that is so countercultural that yeah. it's it's so, it, so it feels like a tremendous responsibility on who's on his on, half, yeah. <laughs> especially when you, you don't know what he looks like. <laughs> come follow me. You leave the hotel and you're looking for him. Yeah. I don't. I, I think that's one of the reasons why I, I always keep people at, uh, or, uh, like, like, in terms of when we were talking earlier, we didn't get to the part where I didn't have a happy ending when you saw me. Oh yes, song. yeah, yeah. More about you. Uh, no, I'm so, just saying that. Like, I, 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 no, what, what, I don't know what to do with followers. I, I, I barely know what to do with fans. You know? And oh yeah. Because like it's it's emotionally it, it kind of. Uh, I have bad boundaries, so it exhausts me emotionally. So the, the idea of someone selling their things and following me to me is and not that I'm Luke, but even just for him, you know, it'd be like, oh my god! And then you get these people, you got to feed them, you got to tell them what to do with their lives. So if you met Jesus, you say, "I feel bad for you." <laughs> yes. Good luck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I hope everything works out. I gotta go. Yeah. Um, so that yeah. So that, that's what. But I'm. I'm. I'm He'd be a hero. I'm constantly in, intrigued, and I would say, uh, yeah, he, he's no more than. I'm very interested in him. Yeah, and I, and I don't even know if him is the right word. The Jesus. Yeah, I don't. I'm very interested. All right, so let's talk about my unhappy ending. Uh, well, I left that show. I remember it was in a thin room. There was a kind of a metal staircase towards the back. The seats were more than no more than four or five per row. And what was refreshing was the, there was no happy ending, but I kind of felt, you know when you see other unhappy people and it kind of, <laughs> it kind of, yeah. Yeah. it kind of says you're not alone. Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's my job for the unhappy, <laughs> for the, for the sensitive creative ones that just I don't felt, feel. I just felt good that I'm not, I have seen myself reflected. There you go. And that, that explains my, my very specific audience. <laughs> <laughs> a glum lot looking for a little relief I was very taken by that I was very because that's an unusual voice in stand-up because you're not a slave to the dick joke you're not a slave to um, that rhythm and that's very refreshing there aren't that many people who speak honestly on stage I think you do I don't really Mark I play you, know. you mix it up though I'm just saying that totally. you do talk about yourself yes yeah. yeah. Well, it was good talking to you. It's a pleasure talking to you. Tommy Tiernan. That was nice. Nice talking to an Irish fella. Uh, Tommy Hector and Larita, the podcast, is available wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch uh, him and the Dairy Girls on Netflix. And now we all hang out for a second.
Folks, I told you we'd post some stand-up for you. But then I got the HBO special and I wanted to wait until after that was done. This week, we're posting more than a half an hour of stuff I did over the past year that didn't make it into the special. I've posted that I wrote today. This is what's going on today. Hard to decide who to listen to when nobody shuts the fuck up. fucking live in a culture filled with like amateur talk radio show hosts and wrestling heels. What the fuck happened? This is from two days ago. When I hate myself, I hate everyone who has ever liked me. <laughs> okay. This is what I do, and this is part of the show. <laughs> this is not notes, this is all prepared. I know what I'm doing here. I'm sharing what I do. Sometimes I do it on bigger pieces of paper. The, the bigger writing, I had to, yeah, I had to pull the car over to do that. That was urgent. I'll share some of that with you. We are wired for duplicity. Our parents aren't who we think they are. I had to pull over for that. And then right under it, it says, gaslighting parenting. This isn't fucking lighthearted shit. Is this comedy? I think it is. That was my set from last year at Town Hall in New York. Last November. So a year and a month before I shot my special at Town Hall. You can sign up for the full Marin if you're not already subscribed. Go to the link in the episode description or click on WTF Plus at WTFPod.com. On Thursday, James Austin Johnson from Saturday Night Live uh, is on the show. He just, I was in Nashville and I was on stage. I was talking to Chad Ryden from the stage, a guy who went to Prince's Chicken with me for the first time when I almost had to go to the emergency room. And I thought there was other people there. And I asked who, who was with us. And he said, James Austin Johnson. And I'm like, what? I don't remember that at all. So I thought I didn't know this guy. And I knew this guy. And then there was another guy I didn't even know was there. I don't know if I'm getting dementia, like my dad or what. But, uh, but I just, I got, I got to talk to the guy. And it was great talk. He's very funny. His Trump is hilarious. That thing he did, the Dylan thing he did on Fallon. Oh, my God. Guy's a talented guy and a good guy. All right, here's some, uh, here's some chords that are familiar to anyone who hears me play guitar. But by the way, I've been fucking around with an open G tuning with just five strings like Keith. So fun. You know you can just learn how to play guitar on YouTube. Do you guys know that?
Monkey and the Fonda Cat Angels everywhere.